Welcome, all you wiretappers, back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. I have in the studio with me, Ron Chipsick. Uh, he has been on before on with Mr. Big, who was one of the biggest cocaine smugglers out of South America to Europe, primarily. And you may want to go back and check that episode out. I will have a link in the show notes to that old episode. He has a new book out called Bad Henry. Now, this isn't particularly organized crime, but I found it interesting because I've chased after serial killers and serial rapists and been involved in those investigations myself. And and that's what this book is about. And let me tell you, let me read you a little quote that was written about this book, Bad Henry. True crime master Ron Chepesek chronicles a nightmarish tale of an implacably evil killer as he outwits a police force slow to grasp the magnitude of what's what it's up against the story has all the resonance of a horror movie except that it happened in real life and and i'll tell you folks i have chased after these guys and it's scary there's one guy out there he just died in the penitentiary recently and if i saw him walking down the street in front of me with this particular rolling gate i'd say oh man Oh, my God. That's Damon. Uh, can he remember his last name? Uh, Damon Early. Oh, my. Uh, it would be like I would have flashbacks. So these guys are they're out there all the time. They're killing. They're raping. Uh, and and this little police department struggled with finding the victims and finding the suspects. And Ron got on this story. So, Ron, uh, how did you get on to this story? Well. Uh, I had finished uh, The Real Mr. Big, and usually I have a couple of ideas for uh, books to follow, but for, for some reason, I didn't have anything. So I was a little bit panicky because I like to keep busy. I'm a, a workaholic, really. And so uh, I was on the Internet one day, and I just ran across Wallace. And I said, oh, yeah, I remember him. I said, I remember this case back in the 90s. And I said, yeah. And I said, in fact, one time I thought about uh, doing a book, but then there was so much attention to it and so many people wanting uh, a piece of him. I said, uh, I thought there must be something out there. And I, I discovered there were a couple of documentaries uh, that were done on him. And then I looked for a book and I didn't find a book. And then I, I did a search to see what happened to him. The guy's still alive. He's uh, out in central prison in Raleigh. And uh, I said, well, I said, I've never done a book on a serial killer before. But I said, uh, this looks interesting. And I said, it's kind of unique. Um, uh, he knew all of his victims. Um and he wasn't the first to do that. There was another guy named Jerry Marcus that uh, uh, knew all of his victims. But it was very unusual uh, to do that. And uh, I said, this is very close to my home, Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, which is uh, we're like a suburb of, of Charlotte on the South Carolina side, Rock Hill, my hometown. So I said, it would be easy to research. I said that to get the records and to talk to people. And I said, uh, why not? And uh, I, I queried uh, Wild Blue Press, and uh, they quickly came through and said, yeah, we said we'd be interested in this. It's in our line. So um, I went ahead and um, started to research the uh, uh, the story, which was really, really fascinating, um, kind of chilling, you know, to write this story because uh, the way he killed some of his victims were was really ghoulish. And uh, the fact that he was getting away with it <laughs> was kind of frustrating uh, when I was writing it. Really? Now, I was... Looking through your book, it's it's really well written and and it's a page turner and and I noticed that like many of these guys, the ones we investigated, and you get into their their history, 
they seem like just regular normal people. You know, you you read a uh, or see a newspaper report or a uh, TV report about some serial killer, and the neighbors will always say, "Well, I don't know. He was always kind of quiet. He seemed nice to me." And and this guy, you know, and he came up, went to college, he went to the navy, he had an honorable discharge, and. And so, you know, where does this guy come from? What, yeah. what do you think his motivation was to yeah. become a serial killer? Yeah, that's a good observation. Uh, I sort of describe this guy as a, as a black uh, Ted Bundy. I mean, mm. very, very personable, you know, very disarming. Um, he wasn't as good looking as uh, Ted Bundy, but uh, he had a lot of charm about him. But he was born in uh, Barnwell, um, Barnwell, South Carolina, which is a small town of about 6,000 in South Carolina. It's about half black. And... Uh, he grew up, and uh, on the surface, at least, um, it looked like a very normal uh, childhood. Um, you know, he went to school. Uh, he mixed with uh, his students. Uh, they all liked him. Um, and um, and uh, uh, he ended up on the cheerleading squad. He was the only male on him. And uh, he mixed well with the cheerleaders. I talked to one of them. He uh, was on the student council. He had a very good, uh, very very normal exterior-wise uh, life. And then and you look at his his personal life, which not many people knew, uh, he lived in a shack uh, with no running water, no plumbing. Uh, his mother was uh, was uh, was a terrible woman. She was very abusive. Uh, she had bad relationships with men, and she took it out on on their children. He had a sister named uh, um, Yvonne, and uh, she made them beat each other. Uh, she dressed her son up in a in a mockingly in a in a, a girl's outfit. And made him parade around the neighborhood, you know, totally repressed his uh, his life. And to top of that, uh, he was um, sexually abused when he was four, abused later by other girls in the neighborhood. And uh, he grew up you know, with this twin, two parts of his life, you know, very normal and then very dysfunctional sort of life. And um, I guess all of this just sort of accumulated later uh, to turn him into a serial killer. You know, and I noticed in, in reading your book that he started doing burglaries, breaking into houses. And, and we always had the theory on the guys we've chased around many times. You'd look back, and you'd find that was their early crimes were burglaries. Do you think and, and we always kind of thought that maybe their need for a thrill started, you know, breaking into houses and making me breaking into a house when somebody's there and then break into a house and confronting somebody. And then they had this sexual twist to them. Is, uh, did, is that, do you think that was his progression? Just yeah, that, that's need a very for good a observation. Yeah, that's a very good observation on that then. Uh, I thought that, that uh, you know, he probably did it as a thrill because there was no reason for him to do it, really. He had a good career in the Navy. Uh, he went into the Navy and, uh, like I said, his... Um, uh, uh, exterior-wise, his life was okay, but uh, he he did he he uh, he was a petty criminal. And in, in fact, he when he joined the Navy in '85, uh, he ended up in, uh, in the Seattle area. He got caught breaking into a hardware store and got two years probation uh, out of that. And uh, he was fired from a job later uh, in Barnwell um, uh, because he broke into the uh, radio station where he was a, a disc jockey and uh, stole some equipment and all that. And but he never seemed to really pay for his crimes. You know, he seemed to be scolded, uh, hit on the, um, you know, uh, sort of tapped on the wrist and uh, and let go. And uh, this happened, you know, even after his first murder, which he did in uh, 1990 um, in Barnwell. He murdered this young young girl named Tashanda Bethay. She was 18 years old, high school student, and uh, he had a, a crush on her. He, he lured her out to. Uh, 
to a lake area and uh, uh, put the make on her, pull a gun on her and put the make on her. And uh, he says, uh, you're not going to tell anybody what he, he had sort of second thoughts. And he said, you're not going to tell anybody that we were out here on land. And she said, yeah, I'm going to tell, which was really uh, not very smart. And then she realized her mistake. But by then, Wallace um, uh, knew that she would tell. So he killed her. He strangled her, threw her in the lake. Um, he was uh, uh, recognized as being uh, being with her. And the cops picked her up. I talked to a couple of cops that uh, interrogated him, uh, said he was really smooth. And uh, they knew or had a hunch that he was the killer. But they didn't have any evidence. And uh, so they let him go. And uh, at that time, he was accused of also raping a girl in Barnwell, a young 16-year-old, and also potentially killing somebody in neighboring Allendale County. And so, uh, you know, he, all this was coming to a head. His wife, uh, he had married, and his wife and him weren't getting along, and they were getting a divorce. And so uh, all of this was building up, and he decided to leave. And he left um, Barnwell. And uh, headed and because you know they, they weren't going to arrest him because they had no evidence, so he was he was free to go. So he he uh, ended up in uh, Rock Hill, my hometown here, in 1991, and um, he uh, he got in trouble here. He was uh, accused of raping a girl, and um, and uh, uh, he left soon after and ended up in Charlotte, where he stayed for the next couple of years. You know, these guys, just like that uh, um, Golden State killer, they know, and he certainly knew because he was a copper, they know to move, it seemed to know, have this instinct to move around to different jurisdictions. And that makes it really hard for police to put it together. Police, uh, well, they'll get they'll get a task force going. They'll get something going if they really realize right. with, without any question, this is a serial criminal. But when you go to different jurisdictions, you know, they all seem to stand alone. You might do two and one and one and another and then not do anything in those exactly. other two and go to a third one. And in that area is that that Charlotte Mecklenburg area. It's uh, a whole lot of different little jurisdictions, I'll bet, around there. Yeah. And so they, you know, somehow they know that instinctively. This guy may have known that or he may have studied it out and thought about it. Right. So it really makes it hard to put together. I noticed he he started preying on uh, sex workers, which and drug addicts, which makes it even harder for the police because those girls have a lot of enemies. Anyhow, they have or maybe not enemies, but they have uh, uh, stalkers. They have people yeah. that that are bad people that are in their lives, whether it's their pimps or their friends or their drug dealers or whatever. Besides the men that that uh, participate or use them. So that that really makes it even tougher. And, and what you said is is finally there's a lot of heat started coming down on the police because they weren't putting it together, which that's yeah. happened here in Kansas city. I don't know, three or four times. Yeah. Is that then? Yeah. Yeah. He, um, uh, you said sex workers. They're actually the only uh, sex worker among the uh, victims that he, the 10 women he killed was, um, the first one, Sharon Nance. Oh, okay. Uh, he, yeah. He picked her up. The other ones were, they were really nice girls. They were young, young black. Oh, really? Uh, the oldest was 35. Uh, the youngest was about 18, and they were hardworking. They were going to college, um, and uh, they knew each other. A lot of them knew each other, which is amazing. And mm -hmm. Wallace knew all of them because he was usually their boss at work or uh, or worked with them mm -hmm. on that sort of thing. So they trusted him. You know, he was very, very affable, uh, very sneaky. You know, he knew how to talk to them and uh, how, to, how to gain their trust. 
And uh, they're unsuspecting when uh, he showed up at their house and uh, decided to kill him. Wow. So how did the police start finally putting it together? And I know you, you have in your book that there was some heat coming down on that got a lot of criticism for not. Well, they did get this. a lot of criticism on that. Uh, like I said, there was only like seven detectives investigating all these crimes and they didn't talk to each other. And uh, there was there was other there was um, there was evidence, but they never saw it. Um, but but finally, uh, he, uh, Wallace uh, began to uh, uh, crack up. He just sort of uh, disintegrated. He he got really hooked on crack, mm. uh, uh, and he was looking for money. Uh, you know, crack is not that expensive, but he was he was a um, fast food worker, so he wasn't making much money. So he uh, was look constantly looking for money. Um, his girlfriend uh, uh, dumped him because he was on drugs and she didn't approve of it. Uh, Sadie McKnight and all that sort of thing. And he was very careful. He, uh, he was very smart um, in terms of how he handled the crime scenes. He always wiped them down. They never found any evidence um, or they thought they never found any evidence. But um, he, uh, he ended up um, uh, uh, becoming careless. And uh, then he did uh, really uh, a really stupid thing. Yeah, he ended up killing uh, three women that that lived in the same immediate area. Mm. And finally, he was staring yeah. at the cops in the face. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was, it was staring at into the face. And um, uh, McFadden, who uh, was given the invest head of the investigation, uh, Sergeant um, Gary McFadden, uh, he took over the investigation. He said he said, "Well, who knew all the victims that we that 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 were dead?" And um, uh, only one name came up on the list. That was Henry Wallace. Mm -hmm. So they did some investigating. They found out that he was arrested a little while earlier on shoplifting. Uh, they did a, a search on his record. They found out that he had, uh, you know, committed crimes in another area on that sort of thing. He was accused of rape. And so, um, um, then the DA, then the uh, rape kits came back. They were very slow in processing them because of uh, lack of manpower. And they found some, some DNA. On, on that, uh, the palm print and, on the trunk. And finally, they said, okay, this all happened within like a couple of days. I mean, you know, this has been going on for two years and all of this came to a head like in a couple of days. And then they went looking for him and they found him at a friend's house hiding in a bathroom and uh, they arrested him and brought him in. And um, he was very cooperative. Uh, I think he wanted to just get it off his chest. And so he talked for like 10 hours and mm. uh, that formed uh, the, the real part of my of my research materials you know which i um i got access to i got access to these um uh transcripts and they were fascinating on that uh and um later in court they tried to throw them out they tried the the defense tried to get the uh transcripts thrown out they said uh they weren't they weren't obtained legally and they claimed that he wasn't read his miranda rights but the judge didn't agree and uh, uh and uh and tossed out the uh the, the uh charges Interesting. Sometimes it's like these guys uh, are almost bragging about what they've done and what they've gone yeah. gotten away with, the way that the detail they'll go into. I've seen that before. Uh, yeah. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. When, when you said he confessed in, in great detail. So that's how you knew at the start of the podcast, you said that he put a gun on her and, and she said, well, I, she told him that, you know, well, I'm going to tell somebody. I thought, well, how could he know that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, <laughs> right. He, uh, Henry later on told the cops whatever they yeah, were. Yeah, yeah. He he confessed. He confessed, and uh, and so that you know that was you know firsthand t uh, testimony on that. Yeah. And um, uh, the only the only uh, murder that wasn't included 
as part of the indictment was the Nance murder, Sharon Nance, the first one that was the prostitute that we're talking mm-hmm. about. Oh, yeah. And they decided that her case was so different than the others that it might complicate things for the jury. Yeah. So they, so they decided not to include that. And of course, her family was very upset mm-hmm. on that sort of thing. But he did confess to killing her. And um, and uh, they um, also another victim, uh, Car- um, Carol Nance, who was the, the first victim after, uh, I mean, Carol Love, the first victim after Sharon Nance, uh, uh, he he dumped her body in a, in a, on, on a road, uh, a real rural road on that. And it, it was like two years after that they discovered the body. Mm. You know, they went looking for her and uh, they couldn't find her. They didn't know what happened to her. And he confessed to that, to that murder on that. So they found that, uh, uh, that, that woman, the remains of that woman. One jurisdiction, which jurisdiction was this where the sergeant worked for? Well, it was a Charlotte, it was a Charlotte yeah, police for Charlotte Metropolitan Police uh, okay, all right. Department. And then and there was the Mecklenburg, they later united. Okay. A little later, they united into one unit um, on that because they felt it was more efficient on that. But it was, it was essentially the Charlotte police okay. that, um, that uh, handled the... Uh, uh, the, the murders. And the interesting thing about the murders, they all occurred uh, within a five mile radius, hmm. you know, which is amazing, right? 10, uh, you know, it is. 10 murders and they all occurred within a five mile radius. So uh, that was another thing that should, that should have been odd to the police. <laughs> and they all knew each other. That was even yeah. more odd. Just yeah, yeah. And they worked with each other. Uh, if they didn't know each other, uh, their sisters knew uh, Henry Wallace. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, really amazing. Yeah, because that's you know a deal like that. That's the first thing you start looking for is you know who, what place or what what was any nexus of where they all cross paths or cross you know knew the same person or something. That's a very first. Yeah, yeah. Thing I mean, yeah, they, they, they worked. They, they knew each other. Um, uh, Carolyn Love and uh, Shauna Hawk. Um, were friends. They were the you know the second and third uh, wow. friends, um, second and third victims, and um, and uh, uh, the other ones that, that they were like either they knew them or their sisters knew them, or somebody knew them that, that they were related to, on that sort of thing. And um, so yeah, so it was it was a very um, uh, uh, close thing. I mean, the people just people just knew each other and. Uh, and if the police were on the ball, they should have been, been able to pick this up. You know what I mean? It's a, the coincidence of you yeah. know everybody knowing each other. Yeah, <clears throat> that was crazy. I noticed that at the end here, uh, a judge made a, not the judge, judge allowed him to have his say. And, and he turned to the audience in the courtroom and he said, none of these women, none of your daughters, mothers, sisters, or family members in any way deserve what they got. They did nothing to me that warranted their death. I thought that was that was kind of interesting. That uh, I mean, it was almost like maybe he was glad he got caught. He was so yeah. compelled to do these. Would Would you say it was it was a compulsion on his part to just keep killing, keep killing, yeah. and and maybe possibly that he was glad he was caught and somebody yeah. outside stopped him. I've heard of that before. Right. Yeah. Well, they didn't believe him. They didn't buy that. You know, they they thought he was uh, very in, insincere. I mean. You know, like for example, the mother of uh, Shauna Hawk, uh, Dee Sumter, um, uh, she met him in a parking uh, in a supermarket um, a, a couple days or a week later or something, and 
he he expressed his condolences. Oh, to really? Her. And then he showed up at the funeral. He wow. showed up at the funeral and he was sitting in the back. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, how can you trust a guy like that? Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, that that was, uh, I think the word for that is disingenuous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, on that then. So, that yeah, end. so so they knew um, exactly, uh, you know, uh, who he was on really? that. Yeah. <laughs> Kind of a funny little side story. I was uh, sitting in a courtroom once and there was a guy being sentenced for murdering a girl. And it was probably not the only one he murdered. Uh, she had been a street prostitute, but, but, you know, had been a good girl at one time. She had a big family sitting out in the uh, courtroom waiting, watching the sentencing. So the judge gave him 40 years and, and it was, it was, I don't know why he only gave him 40 years, but it was, there were some extenuating circumstances and this guy turned and started addressing the family members. And he started saying that she was all kinds of crack whore and no good. And Oh my God, that oh, wow. erupted. I mean, we had a Donnybrook uh, yeah. trying to protect our, our suspect or our, the defendant from the brothers. Of the <laughs> victim. Yeah. I would imagine, I mean, how terrible it was. Oh my but, God. Uh, but you can imagine for, for the victims that uh, this guy has been on death row for 27 years. That's amazing. Especially, and, know, he confe- I mean, and he confessed in great detail. He's yeah, been right. He, confessed for 27 and, uh, years. he was convicted uh, you know, of all the murders. And um, at the time that he was uh, uh, sentenced in 1997, uh, the death penalty was still in vogue. You know, it was still in vogue. But yeah. as time went on, it got increasingly out of vogue when they found so many innocent people that, that were yeah. getting get killed by the death penalty. So there was a moratorium put on the death penalty by the... Uh, North Carolina governor, uh-huh. and uh, he exhausted all of his appeals by 2005. Uh, 2005, and so the only thing left was for the state to set a, a execution date. And here we are. I mean, you know, it's like 18 years later, and uh, he's still he's still on death row. And I asked, uh, I asked some of the police. I said, um, uh, or some of my sources. I said, uh, do you think? you think he'll be executed? And uh, all they said was, who knows? Yeah. You know, I, I quote that in there, Gary McFadden. I said, he said, who knows? You know, nobody knows what's going to happen to him huh. on that. But uh, uh, it doesn't go well with the fam- with family members. Be you know, hard. it's a constant pain knowing that he's still alive and, and their their loved ones are are dead. Hmm. So uh, what ca- what state is that? Is that South Carolina or North Carolina? Uh, this is North Carolina. North Carolina. So it would be up to the governor. Yeah, up to the to, governor. To yeah. order. It's kind of in, in limbo right now after this moratorium, but yeah. the governor, I guess, could make a moratorium. Governor's yeah, and they got a, and they got a, a Democratic governor, too. So you know, he, and Democrats yeah. uh, tend to be, be more against the death penalty. Right. Seemed like to be better just go ahead and commute his sentence to life imprisonment and get it over with. And, and yeah, you know, if you're going to do yeah. it, just do it and get it over yeah. with. And, and put that lets, you know, everybody yeah. can rest at ease in. You may want him to right. be executed, but. Don't sit around. Don't keep them waiting to see if there's going to or not. Just yeah. either do one or the other. Yeah, on that then. But anyways, if you look at it, he's not going to get out of prison. That and he's only mean. he's only like what fifty eight years old. Yeah. So he's still a young man, and yes. uh, he could spend another thirty years in in prison on that. Interestingly, uh, he married a, a psychiatric nurse in the prison. Yeah. Yeah, Rebecca Tor- Torrios, um, he ended up marrying her. She was 23 years his senior. And um, she got fired from her job after they found out that uh, she had been, uh, she had a relationship with him. Yeah. And um, 
she is still around. She's in her 80s now. And uh, she's not living in Charlotte. And uh, I don't know where where exactly where she is. Well, <laughs> that's not, that's happened before and it'll probably happen again. I know some of these, yeah. uh, uh, some of these guys in penitentiaries, no matter what they've done, they can be pretty charming. And, you know, and they got their own like little groupies, right? Right. I get, they get letters all the time. There's a certain group of women out here that are infatuated with people on death row. Yeah. Or, or yeah. even serial rapists or serial murderers. It's uh, yeah. if they make the news and their pictures in the papers, it's like somehow yeah. they'll they'll have their groupies. Yeah, and these serial killers are manipulative, so they yeah. know how to handle that. Yeah, they do. They are. Yeah. And even even people who work in the prison system, they can they can con they can con them too, even though they ought to know yeah. every story there ever was. But yeah, somehow they get it yeah. done. But he's in uh, he's in isolation. Well, all right, Ron. I tell you that death row thing. That's uh, that's been a bugaboo for a lot of people. There's a lot of political forces at play, and and I don't know, you know, the real answer, the final answer. Uh, but anyhow, what do you think's the legacy of this case? It's uh, it's uh, it's a really it's the biggest um, a murder um, uh, murder investigation in North Carolina history, and uh, the biggest trial probably in North Carolina history. It. Uh, it really um, showed the. Um, I mean, it 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 really showed how how important police work is, right? Yeah. In uh, in this uh, in, in an investigation, uh, it's everything. I mean, they they missed so many dots in this case that it's un- incredible on that sort of thing. And so uh, I think that uh, it's helped the police force in Charlotte. Uh, they've had a lot of reforms since then. They've gotten. A lot of technology, which you never had. The city government, that's one of the complaints they made to me was the city government didn't want to support them the way they should. And uh, they've increased their detectives investigating murders to like 25. Mm. And they've taken them off other investigations like domestic homicide, for uh, domestic abuse, for example, on that. Uh, on a personal level, <laughs> I mean, it, this, this case was chilling to know that there are people like this out in the world, right? <laughs> yes. And... Um, as we were talking before the show started, um, they're, they're out there wandering the world, right? Just looking yep. for their next victim. And uh, what can we do about it? I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it's something we're going to have to live with because serial killers are have been around for a long time and they're going to continue to be around for a long time, no matter how good the police work or how vigilant the public is. All right. You're right on that, Ron. It's always going to be here. So uh, being forewarned is forearmed. Guys, get this book. Bad Henry by Ron Chepesek. I will have a link in the show notes and you can be, you'll be able to go right to Amazon and get it. Uh, he's got other books out there. What are the name of some of your other books? Ron has mainly done narcotics work. This is a little bit of an anomaly for him. So tell us right. the names of your other books. Ron. I mean, I've been mostly organized crime, drug trafficking. Um, I've got a book out, um, uh, Crazy Charlie, which has been turned into a movie. It's the, the, the movie um series is coming out uh june uh, 20th being put out by vix uh streaming service and um i've got uh books on frank matthews uh who disappeared with mm-hmm. a beautiful woman and 20 million dollars in 1973 and never been seen again mm-hmm. sergeant smack biggest drug tra- drug trafficker in um in uh, southeast asia and uh several other books on organized crime and all I have, i've done about 42 books 
Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, guys, I'll just put a link to his Amazon author page and then you'll be able to see all of the books right. that he's gotten and choose whichever ones you want. Yeah. So, Ron, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, and, it's been great seeing you again, Gary. I'm glad really. things are going well with you. And, and you're going to come back and we're going to talk about Carlos later and this upcoming series that, that right. you're involved in. Right. So, it's scheduled to uh, appear this June, uh, July 20th. So we'll we'll see. And um, I'll I'll contact you about that later. Okay. Do you know the actual title of it yet? It's crazy, Charlie. Oh, uh, that's okay. That's crazy, Charlie. I didn't yeah, put right. that together. Okay. All right. All right. Great, Ron. It's really good seeing you again. Thank you, then, Gary. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Well, guys, don't forget that I like to ride motorcycles. So watch out for motorcycles when you're out there on the street. And if you have a problem with PTSD and you've been in the military, be sure and go to the VA website and get that hotline number. And if you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, be sure and look up our friend Anthony Ruggiano, former Gambino member. He is a drug and alcohol counselor down in Florida right now. He's got a website with a hotline number on it. Go to his YouTube channel. I, he, you know, he, I like to promote uh, Anthony. He's a good guy. I, I like to promote him and, and uh, go to that and get that hotline number for his uh, treatment center. So thanks a lot, guys.